Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Legal likes and antitrust victory launches Facebook into the $1 trillion territory. Dividend delights, the big banks announce bigger payouts, and Delta Danger, Russia and Australia, the latest nations reporting a sharp rise in COVID cases. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again. Fantastic to have you with us this Tuesday. Another sultry summer day on tap here in New York and across the United States with investors already reaching for some brisk market refreshment, most notably a tectonic, perhaps, with the Nasdaq sitting at all-time highs, helped along by some Facebook fizz, as I mentioned, a $1 trillion market valuation for the social media giant following two big legal victories. We'll discuss them shortly. Plus, a strong banking brew, too. Firms like Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo all announcing big dividend hikes and more. I'll be sticking with the traditional lady grade tea, perhaps, and hopefully won't want to uh, drown my sorrows in something stronger after today's Euro 2020 match between England and Germany. Clearly, I'm not biased at all, but uh, go England on Wall Street. Meanwhile, futures lacking a Java jolt with the Nasdaq set to ease. Yeah, down some two tenths of one percent at this moment from record territory investors also awaiting some new listing punch with Chinese ride-sharing giant Diddy Global set to price its IPO today and could raise some $4 billion in the largest international Wall Street listing since Alibaba. Let's take a look at Europe too. Higher today as economic sentiment data there hits 21-year highs and a second day of losses, meanwhile, across Asia, though perhaps limited to some degree by the Chinese central bank assuring that it won't tighten too fast, even as the economy shows, quote, strength and improvement. Right, let's get to the drivers. And we begin with a trillion dollar status update from Facebook. The company hit the milestone valuation after a judge rejected Federal Trade Commission complaints that it engaged in monopolistic behavior at the heart of that complaint, its purchases of Instagram and what's up? Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. Claire, the last time I checked, and that was this morning, the FTC, the regulator, is a law enforcement agency, a.k.a. it applies the laws as they stand today. So it may be a win, at least temporarily, for Facebook. But it's also a kick up the bottom, I think, for Congress, that if they've got a problem, they have to change the laws. Yes, Julia, this is going to pile pressure on those uh, bipartisan, that bipartisan group of legislators who are trying to push through uh, new sort of rewrites of antitrust law through Congress and have made some progress in doing that. But the irony, of course, of Facebook hitting a trillion dollars as a case on whether it is too large is dismissed by a judge is, of course, interesting. This morning, the stock flat to lower, uh, but up some 137% since the the bottom uh, last year in March. So so seriously has gained uh, from this pandemic. To Facebook saying today, we're pleased that today's decisions recognize the defects in the government's complaints filed uh, against Facebook. And the problems, according 
to the judge, there were several of them. One was that the FTC failed to define the market and thereby prove its assertion that Facebook has a 60 plus percent stranglehold over social media in the US. He said this is sticky because, of course, this isn't a traditional market. The products are free, so it's difficult to define a monopoly based on the usual metrics of things like revenue. He also said that another key assertion by both the FTC and the states who brought a separate lawsuit was that the acquisitions of WhatsApp and Instagram were anti competitive. He said those were simply too old. They were too late in bringing uh, this case because the, the, those acquisitions were seven and nine years ago. Uh, so, so that was one of the reasons he dismissed the state's lawsuit in particular. But he has left the door open uh, for, the, for, the, for particularly the FTC to refile its case. It says it's reviewing its options. But I want to read you a tweet as well from Senator Amy Klobuchar, who is the antitrust chair in the Senate. She says the FTC should do everything it can to pursue its case against Facebook. But the ruling shows why our antitrust laws need to be updated after years of bad precedent. We can't meet the challenges, she said, of the modern digital economy with pared down agencies and limited legal tools. So it'll be interesting to see where the FTC goes from here. Will it re-amend amend its complaint and refile this case? Or will it focus on changing those laws so it can actually sort of apply them in a different way? Yeah, 21st century technology, and you're trying to apply uh, 20th century laws to look at consumer welfare. To your point, it's tough to argue consumer welfare is impacted when the service like Facebook, for example, is free. Meanwhile, Facebook continues to take on competitors, this time Substack, Stack. Talk us through it. Bulletin. What's Bulletin? Yeah, this, according to sources, is going to be launching today. Facebook's answer to Substack, a service that, that sort of allows for the creation and distribution of newsletters, which have, of course, become enormously popular. Facebook has apparently hired dozens of writers who are going to produce newsletters on a variety of topics, things like sport, science, health, things like that. And they're being paid initially to kickstart these newsletters. But eventually, the hope from Facebook is that these newsletters will will be paid, that users will be willing to sort of subscribe to them. And that looks like from Facebook another monetization effort, another another way of sort of diversifying their revenue streams away from just advertising. So interesting to watch how that develops as it launches today, Julian. And watch we shall. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. Bank Bonanza, Morgan Stanley doubling its quarterly dividend to 70 cents a share and announcing share buybacks following last week's Federal Reserve stress test results. Other big banks like Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo and JP Morgan also giving investors news to cheer. Paul and Monica has been watching their progress. Paul, stark contrast between the positive announcements from Morgan Stanley overnight and what we didn't get from banks like Citigroup. Yeah, exactly, Julia. Citigroup holding steady with its dividend and its buyback plan. And I think, you know, that is uh, potentially a sign of uh, concern for city investors and not the best way for CEO Jane Fraser to, uh, you know, have her tenure uh, begin uh, heading that bank. I think Citi still requiring some capital buffers, not able to really follow the suit of all of its rivals and increase that dividend and share buyback program, that might be something investors will be disappointed in. And Wells Fargo also, I'd I'd point out, good news that they are increasing their dividend, but it is still well below the pre uh, you know, 2000, uh, you know, the 2019 levels when they had to cut their dividend pretty dramatically because of the troubles that this bank continues to find itself in with the, you know, fake account scandal and all the problems that Wells Fargo has been dealing with for, you know, the past few years. 
Yes, no surprise. Morgan Stanley investors have most to cheer today. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. To Russia now and tragic and alarming new COVID data. The country has just reported the highest number of daily deaths since the pandemic began. For reference, only around 13% of the population has been vaccinated, despite Russia being the first country to register a COVID-19 vaccine last year. And across Australia, new lockdowns and vaccination policies are being announced as the country grapples with the Delta variant, as Angus Watson reports. Around 10 million people across Australia now impacted by lockdowns in the states of New South Wales, Queensland, the Northern Territory and West Australia. Other states worried about the spread too of this Delta variant which has crept through Australia's defences. Australia was famous around the world for using its border and its quarantine system to keep the virus out. This more transmissible strain of COVID-19 now getting through those defences. People here in Australia know that the only way out of that is vaccination, but vaccination rates have been slow. Here at Sydney's Olympic Park, the mass vaccination hub, people are taking it upon themselves to do something about that. Here's what one mother and daughter said to me about that today. She's aware of how privileged she is yeah, in relationship definitely. to the rest of the population. Absolutely. Especially with my age. I know a lot of people are going to wait a while, but I'll be okay. Australia's vaccination rollout has been dangerously slow. Under 5% of the population here is fully vaccinated with two shots of any coronavirus vaccine. And the government has come under scrutiny for its vaccination rollout. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has continually said that it's not a race. Well, many people here disagree and he changed that sentiment last night when he made vaccines available across the population if people particularly under the age of 40 determine with their GP that it's safe enough for them to get an AstraZeneca vaccine. Australia's over-reliance on that AstraZeneca vaccine, which comes with the very rare chance of blood clots, has stymied the vaccine rollout as imported vaccinations of mainly Pfizer have been slow. The Australian government now wants to supercharge that and is telling people that work in aged care or the Australian quarantine system that they must get vaccinated if they want to keep their jobs. Angus Watson in Sydney, Australia. And coming up on First Move, get used to the tests and get used to the booster shots. We speak to a guest who says rules around COVID could become the day-to-day norm. Stanford Senior Fellow Neil Ferguson joins us live on the programme. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. For a sixth straight day, rescue workers in Florida are searching for survivors of last week's tower collapse. They have recovered two more bodies, bringing the death toll to 11. At least 150 people remain unaccounted for. Investigators still haven't determined the cause of the collapse, but early signs point to structural degradation. CNN's Rosa Flores is surfside in Florida for us. Rosa, great to have you with us once again. I think heartbreak for those involved with this quickly turning to anger too, that warning signs and for many years were met with insufficient or total inaction. No, you're absolutely right. It it almost seems like every single day we get a new nugget of information that begins to paint a grim picture of the structural integrity of this building leading up to the collapse. We started by talking about a 2018 report that described structural uh, damage, and it warned that if 
for example, waterproofing wasn't replaced, that it would create an exponential degree of um, deterioration. Well, fast, fast forward time to 2021, CNN has obtained a letter that was sent to residents saying that their assessment had increased from 9 million in 2018 to 15 million in 2021 because indeed that deterioration had happened, acceleration of that deterioration had happened. And so what a lot of these families are learning now is that there were these warning signs, there were these reports of some of the dangers. Now, as for the rescue efforts right now and what is going on, there's a lot of challenges that they're facing. Uh, we're expecting thunderstorms starting today and for the rest of the week. Once it rains, the, the debris pile becomes very, very slippery. We learned from officials yesterday that there was a rescue worker that tumbled down 25 feet. The families were actually at the site at the time that this happened. And that just goes to show some of the dangers that they're facing. Now officials, of course, uh, are extremely worried, but they know that these search and rescue teams want to do this type of work because their goal is to, to find signs of life in this rubble. We talked to the uh, mayor of Surfside, and here's what he had to say about these dangers. Take a listen. They put a little bit of a, a line on the on the pile of debris because they did have overnight they did have some stuff falling down from the building that's still standing and that's going to have to be addressed and julia um i can tell you from talking to the fire chief they continue uh, the search and rescue efforts they're going on 24 hours a day um, they are tunneling which means they're going and finding voids and, and securing that area so that search and rescue teams can go inside to find signs of life. They also have bucket brigades. Those are the, the teams that you see over the pile of rubble with buckets. Um, and then they're also delayering, peeling some of those pieces of debris to try to find voids. And those are some of the more more dangerous things that they that they have to do because as you saw in probably some of that video, that includes removing very large pieces of concrete from the pile of debris. Julia. It's a monumental task. Rosa Flores, thank you for that update there. Okay, South Africa's highest court found former President Jacob Zuma guilty of contempt of court today. He was sentenced to 15 months in prison. The landmark judgment stems from Zuma's refusal to appear before a commission to answer questions about his alleged involvement in corruption during his presidency. Zuma denies the accusations. The United States wants the UN Security Council to meet on Friday to discuss the brutal civil war in Ethiopia's Tigray region. Yesterday, Tigray forces gained control of the capital city, forcing Ethiopian soldiers to withdraw. This comes after the latest CNN investigation into extrajudicial killings in the conflict. We'll have a full report on the escalation of events there coming up in about 45 minutes on Connect the World. Don't miss that. Now, so to come, variants, vaccines and COVID limitations forever. My next guest warns we may never get to see a post-pandemic era. And... A new dawn at Qualcomm. We speak to the incoming CEO as the chipmaker unveils ambitious 5G plans. Stay with us. There's more to come. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where the temperatures may be hot, but their futures are hmm, not. 
little market movement overall. Some caution, perhaps, as we await key employment data later in the week. Boeing, meanwhile, though, set to give the Dow a boost, rising more than 1% pre-market after an uplifting order from United Airlines. United buying a record 200 Boeing 737 MAX jets and 70 Airbus planes with a list price of some $30 billion. It's a big bet on a domestic travel rebound. In the meantime, though, imagine a world where COVID-level restrictions become the norm. Just in the past week, Malaysia, Thailand and Indonesia announced new restrictions. Japan, of course, still battling to hold a safe Olympics. And the UK continues to delay full reopening. That's just to mention a few. Quote, get used to the online forms. Get used to the tests. Get used to the test and trace calls. You probably should get used to the vaccines too, as you'll doubtless need a booster shot before the year is out. Above all, get used to the regulations. It's a pretty stark warning from our next guest, historian Neil Ferguson. He's a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and author of the new book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Neil Ferguson, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, joins us now. Great to have you on the show with us. I have to say, I read your op-ed this week and I I was sort of depressed, I have to say, but for many reasons and travel actually between the United States and the UK crystallized it for you. Talk us through it. Yeah, uh, Julia, you're probably thinking, oh, no, uh, Dr. <laughs> Doom. Uh, and of course, if you write a book called Doom, you're kind of asking for it. But my, it my point me. in this piece is not <laughs> it's not so much that that we can't get the better of the virus. I, I think the vaccines are proving that that we do have the technology. What worries me is more that by the time we've done that, i.e. by the time we've got enough of the world's population vaccinated to bring uh, this virus under control. We'll have got so used to these darn restrictions uh, that it'll be hard to get rid of them. It's a bit like the way after 9-11. We just kind of got used to those TSA lines at at U.S. uh, airports. And I I had to fly uh, from San Francisco to to London just a couple of weeks ago because I hadn't seen my my family for 18 months and I I was itching to do that. But it was not a fun experience. Uh, The form filling, the the testing that you have to do, wearing a mask on the entire flight. I mean, it's it's certainly not uh, transatlantic travel as as it used to be. And and I, I I'm concerned that these these are like habits that we get we get used to, and the bureaucracies, both public and private, also say to themselves, well, now that we got into the habit of doing this, we might as well keep doing it because who knows there might be another pandemic along. And that's that's the trap. It's a bureaucratic trap more than it's a public health or, or medical trap. You describe it as an inertia about bureaucracy. We all end up just accepting these rules and sort of getting on with it as best we can. Do you think we're overdoing it with national restrictions in the face of of the Delta variant, because you also say in the piece, you know, I, I sort of worry less about Delta. Wait for the next Greek alphabet letter, and there's plenty of them. Perhaps Omega. You worry about the sheer quantity of variants as the virus continues to spread around the world. Well, this is a serious concern. I'm a, I'm a historian, but I do talk to people who work in the fields of epidemiology and virology. And clearly, uh, this vaccine is more of a shape. Uh, this virus, I'm sorry, is more of a shapeshifter than than we thought uh, a year ago. Uh, and of course, the, the the time it takes to get people vaccinated is time 
for further mutation uh, to occur. The good news uh, from the UK vantage point is that uh, the vaccines do seem to have efficacy against this very contagious Delta variant. That's the good news. And we're seeing the same, incidentally, from the data out of Israel. Not a big increase in hospitalizations and deaths. And fingers crossed it, it stays that way, even though case numbers are shooting upwards. But hey, this is just the Delta variant. There are 24 letters in the Greek alphabet. That's only the fourth. And I wonder just what lies in front of us. There's a long way to go. There is almost no vaccination in the poorer countries of, of the world to date. And it's going to be a slow, long haul to get there. Plus, there's lots of resistance to vaccination. A really large proportion of Americans, 28%, say they're not going to get vaccinated. And that makes them vulnerable to uh, to new strains. Uh, uh, and of course, the big worry is is a strain that actually becomes uh, vaccine evading. And, and then I do think we'll be looking, we almost certainly already are looking at, at further shots, uh, even for those of us who are, are, are fully vaccinated. So I think one shouldn't be overconfident. I, I think we have the technology because I think the vaccines can be tweaked. I don't think this is HIV, HIV which ultimately defeated uh, vaccine makers. But I think the longer this takes, the more accustomed we're going to get to endless testing and, and form filling, not to mention those masks, which I hope you aren't aren't throwing away. The UK is about to, to reopen. I think it's uh, it's it's the right thing to do because as long as the hospitalization numbers don't shoot up, uh, we can say the vaccines are working and that's what the vaccines are for. But just wait and see how quickly the, the regulations fall away. In the US at the state level, sure, they're definitely uh, being taken away. But I was very struck when I was researching Doom to find that there are an enormous numbers of states of emergency uh, uh, imposed by presidents still on the books. There's a state of emergency Jimmy Carter imposed that's still actually extant. And that illustrates the tendency of bureaucracy towards inertia. Very few statutes, very few regulations have sun sunset clauses that say they have to expire. And there are many, many more people employed to create new regulations than there are to get rid of them. Yeah, it's far easier to apply to remove. And, and it also goes to the point that you made. There is some sort of vaccine resistance out there. But at the point where you're making the benefits of actually getting vaccinated so negligible and actually we're seeing that. And you talk about this in your op-ed with regards to the challenges that you and your wife went through with your family and you're both vaccinated. Um, it sort of plays into it, too. I, th I think some of the rules, and I, I could give a long list, uh, do seem like bureaucratic overkill. Uh, my wife and I are both uh, doubly vaccinated, have been for some time, and it seems a little uh, odd to kind of require the same quarantine rules for vaccinated people as for unvaccinated people. Uh, th that doesn't make sense. And, and just in the same way that it didn't make any sense uh, last year when they closed all the public parks and beaches in California uh, for a virus that doesn't really get spread that much out outdoors. So I, I do I do worry that we, we have a regulation habit in the West. This is nothing new. We've been re responding to problems with ever more regulation. The Federal Register, which lists all the federal regulations in the United States, only gets bigger. It's only shrunk under one president in the last half century, and that was Ronald Reagan. Uh, and I'm afraid we have the same problem in the UK. Many people blamed Brussels for regulations that were actually home made. So the regulatory state is having a field day on the back of COVID. Uh, and a great many regulations have undoubtedly been created that are that are superfluous, that really don't have public health benefits. I mean, just looking through the regulations that I had to comply with 
as I happen to be in Wales, took me a remarkably long time. I could tell you how many pages if they weren't just doom scrolled online. You go through these what feel like pages and pages of regulations with, of course, mm. the inevitable exemptions. My favorite being the exemption for rehearsals for choirs and brass bands, a wonderful uh, a uh, little bit of regulatory creativity in Wales, uh, which was very beneficial to us uh, as I play in a septet that needed to rehearse. Now, the rule of six would have been fatal to our plans, but the regulators had thought of it. OK, so I have a solution to this for policymakers, and I don't often feel sorry for them, but I do feel a little sorry for them um, on this point. And to save you from being called Dr. Doom and for me for encouraging you is uh, a point that the IMF and that the World Bank have made in the past two weeks on this show. And it is actually the developed nations governments have to step up more and they have to provide more money and they have to release excess vaccine doses as soon as possible and to get them to the parts of the world that don't have them at this moment and prevent the out of control virus spread and the propagation of, of further variants. This has to be part of the solution. Would you agree? I entirely agree that the G7 commitments were not right. sufficient. The, the truth is that Western countries have been hoarding, the developed countries have been hoarding vaccine. Uh, and, and that's really an inexcusable when the crucial thing is to get vaccination to as many people as we can, as fast as we can. And we're falling so far short of that. Uh, and it's in self, it's not a matter of altruism. This is in our self-interest. It cannot be in the self-interest of anybody in the US or in Europe or in the UK to allow this uh, virus to mutate further, whether it's in Africa, in South America or South Asia. That, that will come back and, and bite us by making our vaccines obsolete. So, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely sure you're right. And that's the note on which I think one wants to end. It's an upbeat note. I'm not yeah. Dr. Doom in the sense that this wasn't the <laughs> end of the world and we did find vaccines that work and the technology does allow us to tweak those right. vaccines. But we won't succeed until we've achieved a successful global vaccination. We're a long way short of that. Yeah, and that's our our conclusion together, I think. Absolutely. Um, you're not Dr. Doom, as we said, but your book is called Doom. Please come back and talk to us about the book and I'll have read it by then too and we can um, we can talk through your conclusions on that. Great to have you on the show with us, Neil. As always, fantastic to chat. Neil Ferguson, Senior Fellow Thanks, at the Hoover Institution. Thank you for your time, sir, as always. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday. Cautious trading overall, but the major still very close to record highs. Reflation stocks underperformed on Monday. Chalk that up to rising concerns over the Delta variant, as we've been discussing. But today's record jet order from United is being seen as a strong bet on economic reopenings and recovery. IPO enthusiasm too. Investor demand for Diddy Global's upcoming listing is said to be so strong that shares could price above their indicated price range later today. A good omen, perhaps, for the more than a dozen other companies set to go public this week, too. And as for banks, it's Morgan Stanley's moment. Morgan Stanley shares rallying after announcing a post-stress test splurge. It will double its dividend and buy back more than $12 billion worth of stock. Morgan Stanley, of course, just one company that's encouraging its workers back into the offices. And many people found themselves working from home during the pandemic and a lot actually prefer it. But now that more are vaccinated, some employers want their workers back. Anna Stewart takes a look at the debate on the future of working from home. The Morning Commute. 
a welcome return to normal for some, but others are less keen. I'm looking forward to maybe um, two days in the office. I work from home and uh, I actually do like working from home, but I'd like a bit of uh, both, to be honest, moving forward. No, I do work uh, in the office and I prefer that actually. The divide is only deepening as businesses implement their post-pandemic strategies. For those at Twitter, Facebook and Google, remote working part-time or full-time is now a permanent option. Apple and Uber want their employees back in the office for at least part of the week. And then there are the banks of Wall Street, some of which want to see their workers back at their desks full-time. Goldman Sachs' CEO, David Solomon, called working from home an aberration, saying for a business like ours, which is an innovative, collaborative, apprenticeship culture, this is not ideal for us and is not a new normal. Its New York employees are already back in the office. Meanwhile, the CEO of Morgan Stanley made clear that the bank's New York employees should be back by September, saying if you can go to a restaurant in New York City, you can come into the office and we want you in the office. If it is so beneficial to be in the office, why are so many people choosing not to be there? And in fact, you have to start threatening pay cuts for them. Uh, that is a little bit of a kind of a cultural disjoint, I would say. Telling people to go back to the office may not be popular, but can they actually compel employees to comply? Generally, yes. Governments around the globe have taken the approach of Um, ensuring that an employer has some discretion to refuse a request to work from home if it's not uh, feasible for the the work to be done from home. And you can see why there's legitimate grounds for that, because clearly not every job can be done effectively from home. Forcing workers back to the office full time may have some undesired consequences. I wouldn't do it. I'm not sure I'd, I'd feel so comfortable about that at this point, because... I think we've shown that it's not necessary. I think it's up to the individual, really, but, um, yeah. yeah. Personally, I wouldn't be happy to be forced to be back. (laughs) Anna Stewart, CNN, London. We're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. chipmaker Qualcomm has been rather busy, aside from its core business. In the past four years, it survived a hostile takeover attempt by rival Broadcom. A legal battle with Apple and another with the U.S. government. It was also caught up in the tit-for-tat trade tensions with China. But now the chipmaker is hoping to turn the page with a new CEO as we enter a new post-COVID world. Joining us now is Cristiano Amon. He's president and incoming CEO of Qualcomm. He takes over on Thursday, July the 1st. Sir, fantastic to have you with us. A brave new world and new times, too, at, uh, at Qualcomm. You know, for many of us, I think beyond the challenges of COVID, connectivity has kept us sane. Where do you see the world today and what that represents in terms of opportunities for the future? Very good. Uh, Good talking to you, Julia. We're very excited about the future of technology and the future of Qualcomm. You know, connectivity really proven to be essential to our society today. And we're just at the very beginning of the 5G transition. And with 5G, the company is changing dramatically and we're diversifying away from mobile, uh, continue to be in mobile, but diversifying into automotive, into Internet of Things, and we'll have a major role to play in the digital transformation of many companies, and that's all been accelerated over the past year. So we're very excited about that. Oh, and there were so many exciting things to talk about in there. I can't wait to talk to you about potential for, for disruption as we see greater adoption of, of 5G technology. And I know that's core to the strategy going forward. In addition to 
I mean, what's provided, let's be honest, great diversification for your business in the mobile and the smartphone strategy, given the supply chain challenges that we've seen. Let's just talk about that briefly and how you see that persisting or how long you see that continuing for and, and sort of what that means for not only for you, but for the broader market. Yes, there's no question. I think we all see this uh, supply chain uh, uh, issue with semiconductors. If anything, Julia, it underscored the importance of semiconductors in digital and connectivity uh, for all the business going forward. On the bright side, uh, we put our scale to work and we have taken a number of actions since the beginning of the supply chain crisis. And we have line of sight to, to have this behind us around the end of uh, this calendar year. So by 2022, we see opportunities of uh, supply to meet demand and uh, we get behind this crisis. And we, as we look around the world, it's also illustrated for the United States in particular, but I think for the West, their reliance on nations like Taiwan, for example, China, who are all ramping up investment. And the United States in particular, at a government level now, has responded with a $50 billion investment, future investment. Is it enough in your mind, Cristiano, in line with what we're seeing from the private sector too and, and ramping up manufacturing and development of chips? Look, uh, it's, 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 it's very important. And uh, the, the current environment, um, as we just talked about it, you know, as we learned from the pandemic, connectivity and digital is now part of everything we do. And it was, this, there is an acceleration of all enterprises basically transforming themselves with technology. And semiconductor becomes super important at the very center of this as well as 5G. And what happened is brought to the front of the conversation, the importance of having a reliable supply chain and, and diversity of supply chain. So, look, we've been uh, uh, very supportive of the United States CHIPS Act, about uh, uh, a large amount of investments into manufacturing and design, advanced design of semiconductors, that's kind of what we do. And uh, we welcome having a regional distribution of supply chain for semiconductors, not only in, in with our existing suppliers in Asia, but also building that capability in the United States and Europe. I think diversity of supply chain is going to be good for the industry, and we welcome more suppliers. It will make the industry much stronger and support the growth of technology that we have ahead of us. Yeah, and as we see the accelerated adoption of 5G technology and that transition from, from 4G to 5G, I want to tap into this because I know this is core to Qualcomm's future as well and why you're so excited, I think, about the opportunities. I mean, I was watching the keynote speech at the Mobile World Congress and just the opportunities, and we've already seen it to some degree in in healthcare, in uh, automotives, in education as well, what greater connectivity can mean. Just talk about where you see greatest potential for disruption. I've seen some pretty pointed comments from you for the automaker and the automakers segment. Yes, and by the way, thank you for watching. Uh, look, it's very <laughs> exciting time because unlike the other uh, technologies uh, in cellular, like 3G or 4G, 5G is gonna benefit every industry. And in addition of transforming our smartphones, it's really going to drive this intelligently connected edge when everything is going to be connected to the cloud. And we see with that massive transformation. I'm just going to focus on automotive as an example. The car 
is going to be a computer on wheels. Connectivity of the car with the cloud is changing the business model and creating a number of services to the point that eventually services will actually be more profitable and more valuable than the, than the profit of selling the car as a hardware in the first place. And it's going to transform the automotive industry, developing the new capabilities. We see the transformation of the digital cockpit. And more important, the car, now we talk about a new asset for the companies to have, which is the digital chassis of the car. And, and that's not unique to the automotive space. We see manufacturing transforming. What you could not do before, you need a high-scale manufacturing. Now you see manufacturing coming back to Europe, to the United States, by using 5G to have a cloud control smart factory that you can do in multiple locations. And the list is very long. So there's a number of exciting opportunities and our company is growing and diversifying itself as, as we provide the engine, the technology engine for this digital transformation of many industries. You know, one of the beauties of um, the internet and for social media is it's a window into the world that takes place behind the scenes and the meetings that you have. And I see the beautiful backdrop. Um, I know you're in Paris, that you met personally with Emmanuel Macron too. What can you tell me about what that meeting uh, suggests, perhaps about your interest and investment in, in Europe and what came from that discussion? Yes, uh, we're, we're very excited uh, about the opportunities in Europe. We did uh, started a 5G R&D center in France. Uh, we also had some R&D in France in security. And what is unique about this is about creating a technology platform that can support many other industries. We're already engaged with a number of startup companies now and some of the existing uh, companies in France and Europe about their transformation with 5G. We also, uh, you know, like the fact now uh, there is opportunities for investment in Europe in technology. We also talk about the importance, I talked with President Macron, the importance of the, the competitiveness of the European industry and the French industries as they embrace technologies, which is going to be a requirement going forward for all industries, and a policy uh, to promote investment in technology. So. It was a, a, a very good meeting, and I, I hope to be the beginning of a very important success story uh, with 5G all over Europe. Christiana, while I've got you, um, and speaking of investment, I just want to get um, a quick comment from you, if I may, on one of the biggest deals that we've seen, obviously, in the chip space, and that was NVIDIA's bid for, for ARM. There have been rumors that Qualcomm perhaps would consider a strategic investment in ARM if that deal failed or was blocked by the regulators. I perhaps know what you're going to say to this, but any comment to make on a potential investment in ARM if that deal fails? Oh, happy to talk about it. We were one of the largest, we are one of the largest customers of ARM today, and we're not alone. All of major ARM customers across, uh, you know, the hyperscale, across mobile, across automotive, we like ARM to be independent. And ARM uh, already won. ARM has been extremely successful in mobile, in compute, in automotive, and data center, and they won by adding the collective R&D of, of the ecosystem that supports ARM. And we like uh, the independence of ARM is proven to be a success for all the industries. And if there is another path uh, uh, for an independent ARM, Qualcomm is very happy to invest in addition with many other ARM customers to feel the same way. Yes, ready with the cash.
basically, if that deal fails. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I get the message. I've, You're happy to talk I'm, about it, and we are I, happy to talk I'm, to you. Yes. <laughs> Go on. Very good. <laughs> Cristiano Amonza, thank you so much for talking to us today. Yeah, President and CEO-elect of Qualcomm. We'll speak to you soon, sir. Thank you. All right, next. In the face of prejudice, we turn to pride. We meet the teen artist who's pairing up with Christie's to prove that with art on your side, you're never truly alone. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, to an incredible individual now who's proving that sometimes our greatest pain can become our greatest promise. Victor Langlois said he spent much of his adolescence struggling fundamentally with who he was. After hiding himself for so long, he came out as trans, something that was simply not understood by his parents, his friends or his teachers. With no one to turn to, he turned instead to art and the results are astonishing. Victor, also known as Ferocious, has now secured a partnership with Christie's, which is offering five of his NFT-based works to celebrate the end of Pride Month. He's the youngest ever artist to do so. He's just 18 years old. Oh, and one more thing. The auction has currently raised more than a million dollars. And Victor is here now to talk us through it. Wow. Victor, you are incredible. You know, it's my job to express what moments like this feels like. And I have to say, I'm simply blown away and I'm for once lost for words. Um, but I'm confident you can do a better job. How does this moment feel? Oh, my goodness. This moment is <laughs> insane. You know, you I'm making all the art on my iPad in my room. I'm drawing my feelings, crying, feeling everything that I'm thinking. And then I'm realizing, oh, it's real. We're on the news talking about it. My friends are talking about it. It's a real thing. It's not just my bedroom. It's beyond that. It's I insane. Mean, <laughs> let's just discuss, because it's a journey. These five pieces of art are a journey and the evolution of, of who you are, I think, as a person and your ability to express that from, from sort of 14 to 18. And at, and at 13, you were, you were having a therapy session and the the therapist said, look, I, I think you're depressed. And, and your family sort of didn't accept that. And, and this was sort of the evolution of, of you saying, this is who I am and I'm sort of ready to show it. Just explain your art and what it's telling people. So my art started as a way for me to talk. When I felt unheard, when my family was being transphobic and I had no one I could speak to, art was my best friend and my, my one friend that could hear me out and hear everything I had to say. So art to me is an expression of whatever I'm thinking, either happiness or struggle. And I think it says just me and my heart and everything I'm feeling. Yeah, well, you can see that when you look at the art. It's pretty magical. And I have to say, let's talk about, we can talk about the emotions of this and we can talk about the, think, the power that this represents of, of you as an individual at just 18 years old. Whoever bids on this art, you're going to personally deliver it to them. You've also created and custom-made luggage, which is also, I think, a pivotal part of your story and actually how art has empowered you, both as an individual but also financially, You've living somewhere else now. Talk me through the importance of the luggage and the delivery. 
So me delivering these luggages to the collectors is really important to me because these pieces are my life. My, it's the collection is hello, I'm Victor Fawocious, and this is my life. I want to <laughs> meet the people that I'm giving my life to, my my art to, my little babies. That's how I view my paintings, and the luggage specifically. When I was in Las Vegas and I felt unheard and really sad, what I wanted to escape, you know, I had to get a suitcase. I got one really big suitcase. I was lugging it around the airport and it was so heavy because clothes, I could buy new clothes, but journal entries from 14 years old, paintings, drawings, you can't rebuy that. It's one of a kind. So I just filled that suitcase with all my art stuff and lugged it around. And so when I give these collectors the suitcases I designed, it's me remembering what I brought with me, how I moved out, how I escaped. And it's also like a physical representation of emotional baggage. Yeah, I, I understand that. Never mind the clothes. It's all about the things that make you you. Your heart was in that suitcase. Um, okay. I spoke to the CEO of Christie's recently because you're not only the youngest artist ever, let's be clear, to have art being sold at Christie's, to be auctioned at Christie's. But I also spoke to the CEO of Christie's and talked to him about the idea that known artists should be selling an NFT. They should also be selling the physical artwork. And then you, you combine two audiences, two potential audiences and buyers for your artwork. Well, fast forward to today, Victor, and you're the person doing this. It's not just about an NFT which is powerful, I know, in its own right, but you're also selling physical art with it too. Smart. Yeah, I feel like the world art is about expression and expression can hold different meaning. Expression can be digitally, expression can be physically. And I think with NFTs, hopefully, I can show someone who doesn't get NFTs, they're like, what is this? I don't understand it. But maybe they can see a painting I did and they're like, oh, that's really cool. Oh, it's paired to an NFT. I don't really get it. But the art is cool. I like the story. Oh, NFTs are this really cool tech. But oh, you can tell stories through it. Oh, what is this? And then they go down a rabbit hole like I did when I found out about it. <laughs> it's definitely a rabbit hole, my friend. Uh, we talk about it a lot on, the, on this show. Um, we were just showing the artwork. Um, just previously, that your final piece. Um, and it says at the top of it, I taught myself to fly. And I, I love that. Hearing your journey, hearing the challenges that you've been through, that sort of gives me a frog in my throat to hear. Victor, for other people that are struggling to be honest, to talk to people that feel like they don't belong, that no one understands them, what's your message today about finding the strength somehow to go on and to achieve amazing things. I think there will always be people out there who will see you and who will hear you and who will accept you. It may take time to find those people, but they're out there. I promise they're out there. And if you're pursuing something, whether it be music, art, any passion of yours, if you like making pickles, like anything, like go for it. And if people around you don't accept it, you have to keep going and search out for other people. I mean, I thought it was hopeless to find new friends who liked art like me and liked this <laughs> technology stuff. But, you know, it took me a while, but I found my people. And for once in my life, I can proudly say that I'm the happiest I've ever been. 
Love me this way or lose me and it will be your loss. Victor, you are the best. You are also known as ferocious and you truly are. Good luck with the auction. Huge heart to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. And giving us your time. You're the best. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Linda Kincada is next and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.